Blog Talk Radio.
Because you can find the show in the archives, uh, along with the other however many hundreds of shows we've done uh, on the Blog Talk Archives site. <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you for uh, for listening over the years and and running us up close to uh, a million downloads. Tonight's show, we're going to be talking about making the shot. Now we we talk about this usually a couple of times a year because. Understanding the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship is one of the most important uh, skills and techniques that you can possess is a good, solid understanding of the fundamentals and then keeping those fundamentals up to date. So we're going to, we talk about it a couple of times a year, and we're going to talk about it tonight. Uh, Before we do that, I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, uh, we're going to add in another uh, portion of the show, another thing that we're going to do, and that is there are 1,493 recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. And uh, uh, these, are the, these are the true heroes of America, uh, the men who in in many cases sacrifice their lives. They go above and beyond the call of duty in defense of the nation. Now listen, regardless of whether you think whatever uh, whatever uh, war we're involved in, whatever 
whatever type of engagements that uh, America is involved in, regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong, the individual soldier uh, doesn't have the luxury of uh, debating the right or wrong uh, of the politics at the top. He has to do his job, and I'll tell you this right now, the individual soldier is not worried about politics. When the bullets start flying, you're not worried about uh, the, the reasons that uh, you're engaged in any particular conflict. You're worried about making sure that you're doing your job and that you are doing your absolute best to complete the mission. Uh, anything that you are, anything that you are defending. Uh, boils down to to your foxhole, the guy in it with you. Uh, you do you do your job uh, as part of your team mainly to defend the men on either side of you, and that's what these guys have done. <clears throat> so I'd like to start introducing these guys to you because I think it's a shame when. Uh, uh, when Whitney Houston and Beyonce, yeah, listen, I got nothing against them. You know, they, they're, well, they're whatever they are. I got nothing against them specifically. My grief is that uh, when they do something or something happens, that uh, that takes over the news, and I don't think they're anywhere near as important as uh, as the recipients of the Medal of Honor. So we're going to start off with uh, tonight <clears throat> with a relatively recent one. Uh, T.M. Carter. Uh, he was an Army specialist at the time in the United States Army. Uh, Company B, B Troop, 3rd Squadron, 6th Cavalry Regiment, and 4th ID, 4th Infantry Division. The the date of the event uh, where he earned the uh, CMOH was October 3rd, 2009 at Outpost Keating in Nuristan Province, Afghanistan. Now, I'm not going to go into I'm not going to go into this particular battle and but I would like for you to I, I know about it. Uh, I would like for you to take a look at it because Outpost Keating is, was a very controversial outpost. Number one, why was it even there in the first place? Number two, the uh, the physical location of it. Why you put a bunch of guys down in a hole where everybody else above them has a high ground, I, I don't know, but <clears throat> that's what was done. Uh, I'm going to read you his citation, and uh, I believe that there's actually a a history channel program about this particular uh, event and about Alpha's Keating. Uh, I believe I saw it uh, a year or two ago, uh, but uh, but I would uh, suggest that you take a look at uh, the battle there at Outpost Keating in Nurstan Province in Afghanistan. All right, here's how the citation reads. For conspicuous gallantry, and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. 
specialist Ty M. Carter distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while serving as a scout with Bravo Troop, 3rd Squadron, 61st Cavalry Regiment, 4th Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry Division. That's a long address, but that's, that is how you uh, <coughs> determine uh, the, uh, your parentage in the service. This was during combat operations against an armed enemy in Kamdesh District near San Province, Afghanistan, on October 3, 2009. On that morning, Specialist Carter and his comrades awakened to an attack of an estimated 300 enemy fighters occupying the high ground on all four sides. You hear what I'm saying? The high ground on all four sides of combat outpost Keating. Employing concentrated fire from recoilless rifles, rocket propelled grenades, anti aircraft machine guns, that's the 50 calibers or 12.7, mortars and small arms fire. Specialist Carter reinforced a forward battle position, ran twice through a 100-meter gauntlet of enemy fire to resupply ammunition, and voluntarily remained there to defend the isolated position. Armed with only his M4 carbine rifle, Specialist Carter placed accurate and deadly fire on the enemy, beating back the assault and preventing the position from being overrun over the course of several hours. With complete disregard for his own safety and in spite of his own wounds, he ran through a hail of enemy rocket-propelled grenade and machine gun fire to rescue a critically wounded comrade who had been pinned down in an exposed position. Specialist Carter rendered life-extending first aid and carried the soldier to cover. On his own initiative, Specialist Carter again maneuvered through enemy fire to check on a fallen soldier and recovered the squad's radio which allowed them to coordinate their evacuation with fellow soldiers. With teammates providing covering fire, Specialist Carter assisted in moving the wounded soldier 100 meters through withering enemy fire to the aid station and before returning to the fight. Specialist Carter's heroic actions and tactical skill were of critical to the defense of combat outpost Keating, preventing the enemy from capturing the position and saving the lives of his fellow soldiers. Specialist Ty M. Carter's extraordinary heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself, Bravo Troop, 3rd Squadron, 61st Cavalry Regiment, 4th Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry Division, and the United States Army. <clears throat> and that was a fairly long discussion in the citation, <clears throat> longer than, than many I've seen. However, the, the, the short discussion of it there in, in by no means covers uh, the details of what actually went on. The, uh, the battle there at Outpost Keating was a very savage battle. And the outcome was by no means predetermined. Uh, it it certainly appeared uh, during many portions of the battle that the outpost would be overrun, and if it were to be overrun, uh, all of the folks there uh, would have gone under the knife. That's without a doubt. 
So uh, I would uh, suggest you look up the Battle for Outpost Keating, and uh, and if you get a chance to see the discussion of it on the History Channel, then by all means, uh, by all means, do that because uh, it was a very a very involved battle, and uh, uh, and Specialist Carter's uh, involvement in it was was uh, was extraordinary. All right, there. As I said earlier, there there were three thousand four hundred ninety three recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. There are seventy nine that are still living. Now, you may not know this, but there are actually nineteen individuals that are double recipients. They earn the medal not just once, but twice. <clears throat> so uh, I'm going to uh, we're going to have a a discussion of the uh, of one of the Medal of Honor winners during uh, recipients. I don't want to say winners. You don't win it. Not a, a contest where you win something. You uh, you are awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. <clears throat> All right. Uh, one other thing that I want to mention before we get uh, started tonight is that uh, May 16th, there's, there's, every day uh, you can look back through history and, and every day of the year, if you go back through history, something, something else has happened on that day. Uh, something else happened on May 16th uh, in the prior years, and <clears throat> and tonight what we're we'll talk about just for a minute is uh, is the events or what happened on uh, May 16th, 1943. What happened on that date was the ghetto uprising, the Warsaw ghetto uprising came to an end. And I want to tell you about another date. It ended on uh, May 16th, 1943, but I'll tell you another date involved in this. It began on April 19th, 1943. <clears throat> The Warsaw getting ghetto uprising uh, was the nineteen forty was was in nineteen forty three and what it was was the uh in nineteen thirty nine let's go back real quick to nineteen thirty nine uh, German occupational authorities in Poland Germany had invaded Poland and uh, they began to round up. Uh, the population of, uh, there were over 3 million Jews in Poland, they began to round them up and and ship them to uh, what they call these ghettos. That's where the, that's kind of where we get the term from today, which were the uh, like lower income sections of the cities. And they began to ship them into these ghettos uh, in the, the large Polish cities like Warsaw, 
the largest one that they shipped to was the Warsaw Ghetto. And they shipped in and uh, squeezed in and, uh, 300 to 400,000 people, uh, packed them in into a little tiny, approximately three and a half square kilometer uh, area in central Warsaw, in the middle of the city. Uh, that's, that's a tiny, tiny area. Here we're talking about half a million people squeezed into uh, uh, approximately a, a mile and a half squared. Uh, and anytime you pack a half a million people into a tiny area, they don't have any food or medical, then then disease becomes rampant. Thousands and thousands of the uh, of the Warsaw Ghetto Jews died from disease and starvation. Uh, and this was even before, because what they were doing, they were holding them there uh, until they could be deported to Treblinka, which was the German extermination camp. Uh, the Germans began uh, moving them out of the Warsaw Ghetto and shipping them to Treblinka, and what happened was that word finally, after a couple of years, word got back to the folks in the ghetto about what was happening. And and they they decided that rather than than slowly wait for their chance, for their turn to be shipped off and executed, that they were going to fight back. And uh, they managed to scrape up uh, actually a very large amount of money to buy just a, a, a few pistols and rifles. And this was only a, a handful of pistols and rifles. And <clears throat> during one of the uh, uh, during one of the uh, times that the Germans entered, the the police and the SX, including the SX auxiliary forces, uh, they entered the ghetto and they were planning to complete the deportation action. Uh, and when they did, they were ambushed by the Jewish insurgents firing their pistols and rifles they had and tossing uh, Molotov cocktails and grenades from uh, from ambush the Germans who had entered the ghetto, uh, their advance bogged down. Uh, their uh, the the armor that they brought with them uh, was set on fire and destroyed, <clears throat> and uh, they ended up having to regroup and call in more uh, soldiers. To put down the uprising, and uh, and finally, at the end of the, uh, it was a little, a little less than a month from uh, April nineteenth to May sixteenth. They had destroyed the resistance. They had killed thousands of uh, the Jews in the ghetto. The German forces had lost three hundred. Uh, soldiers killed and 
ultimately, everybody ended up being shipped out of the Warsaw Ghetto as it was destroyed, uh, building by building. They actually went through the ghetto, destroying it. And it's, like I said, it wasn't it wasn't that difficult because we we're only talking about a square mile and a half, destroying the buildings, building by building. The Serbs uh, continued to try fighting, like fighting from the sewers, but that didn't last long. They were finally, ultimately, they were uh, all either captured or killed. The deportation continued, and ultimately, uh, the majority of them were sent to Treblinka, where they were executed. That's your Today in History, May 16, 1943. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I, I want to let you know, too, that we they were starting to try out, try another mail-out reminder. And I don't know if uh, any of you guys got any of the uh, any of the mail-outs yet. I don't know how the mail-out system is working, the blog talk mail-out system, but I tried sending the radio reminders today for the first time uh, in uh, quite a few years by the blog talk system. So hopefully we'll be getting uh, – uh, that system will be working so that I can send out the reminders and I can let you guys know if there are any changes and what the – the upcoming topics for the shows are going to be stuff like that. <clears throat> and uh, and certainly if you don't want a reminder, uh, there's no way to to opt out. They haven't built into the system a, a way for you just to click on a button and opt out. You'll have to send me a send me the email back with remove in the uh, subject uh, heading, and I'll manually remove you from the email reminder list, okay? <clears throat> I know a lot of people get uh, tweaked about getting emails. I don't, I'm not sure I understand it all the time. I know I've had some people that have just gone crazy over getting one email reminder for the radio show, <clears throat> but uh, but sometimes folks do. So <clears throat> hopefully that will uh, some more work, and uh, we'll be able to get the information out to people on upcoming shows. All right. <clears throat> Uh, I want to remind folks that uh, that Battle Road has uh, uh, several classes uh, coming up, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, grab the homepage real quick and uh, and just give you a real quick reminder of those. It is, uh, we've got the uh, Ghost of Goliad, which is our Fundamentals of Rifle class. It's a two-day Fundamentals of Rifle class where we we give you the uh, uh, two solid days of uh, Fundamentals of Rifle Marksmanship instruction along with, uh, along with discussion of the Texas War for Independence, and we introduce topics for self-reliance and prepping. Uh, We don't spend a whole lot of time on discussing them. What we're doing is we're just introducing the topics to you and reminding you that you need to be spending time working out uh, these ideas, things like uh, 
water and food storage, water purification, land navigation, uh, gardening, uh, energy, security, uh, all of the things that uh, that may uh, be of interest to you in the event of any type of cessation of services event. Uh, with the power going out, the water going out, uh, anything like that. Things that can happen during hurricanes or tornadoes. Uh, uh, anything that can cause you to be the sole provider of food, water, and energy for yourself and your loved ones. The things that you should be thinking about now, not five minutes after it begins. So you'll get two days of rifle marksmanship. We'll have discussions of the Texas War for Independence, and we parallel it with the American Revolutionary War because the two events are very similar. They have very similar uh, origins of the conflict. Uh, they have very similar reasons that the conflict began. We have the the Texas uh, uh, colonists who didn't want independence they wanted their rights under the Mexican constitution and when they could not uh, get those rights they began to uh, they began to lobby for them and they began to protest and once they started protesting it was decided that the best way to make them shut up and toe the line would be to go and confiscate their firearms. Does that sound familiar? I guess Santa Anna did not read about Gage's attempt uh, and ultimately suffered the same consequences. So those who do not uh, know their history are pretty much doomed to repeat it. This is a good example of that. That will be... June 27th and 28th. Now, this is a ladies-only event. What we've done is we've partnered with uh, the Girl on a Gun organization out of League City and some of their sister chapters in Houston and also in Central Texas in order to provide them two days of uh, rifle marksmanship instruction in a ladies-only environment. And uh, I think I told you once before that when this first started, I was very, uh, I was very reticent to to start uh, these blank-only classes because I felt that uh, that inclusion was better than exclusion. That, uh, getting folks together was a lot easier than getting folks separated. However, uh, I found that uh, I want to do whatever it's going to take to get people on the line and get them this instruction. Uh, certainly these classes, especially this one, isn't really a money-making event. It's uh, it's simply an instructional event to, in order to get this information out. And if the ladies feel more comfortable uh, attending in a ladies-only environment, then that's what I want to serve to them. And that's what we're going to do, June 27th and 28th, uh, at our facilities here in Central Texas. Now, on June, June 6th and 7th, we've got a two-day pistol craft and fighting handgun class. That is a two two classes back to back. 
that you can attend on the same weekend, Saturday and Sunday. There are two separate classes. You can attend one or the other uh, or both. And uh, these classes, uh, now in order for you to attend the the fighting handgun, you need to have either taken our pistol craft already or a, a comparable course from someone else. These classes are not uh, we're not going to teach you that how to how to shoot your handgun from scratch. We want you to show up already uh, already well versed in the use of your handgun and safety. So <clears throat> that'll be June sixth and seventh, <clears throat> May thirtieth and thirty first. We have an open class of the Ghost of Goliad two day fundamentals course. All right. And uh, and I still don't have all of the scheduling down because I've got we've got some things that have come up that have that have kind of shifted a lot of the the open dates that we have. Uh, but I'll tell you in the next couple of weeks we'll have uh, about uh, a dozen more classes added to the BattleRoadUSA.com website. All right, so be sure to take a look back there, BattleRoadUSA.com. We'll have the uh, beef and small game processing class, which is going to teach you how to take a uh, uh, an animal from the field all the way uh, into uh, packaged meat in your freezer. Uh, a direct uh, hands-on course uh, that uh, is going to show you uh, the the techniques needed to to uh, to process the animal, we'll have a bit of history about uh, about uh, meat processing, and we'll discuss uh, things like uh, the hows and whys of it. And uh, that will be that will be in the next 60 days. We've got a class with uh, Caleb Cauty of Lone Star Medic coming in the early fall, and then uh, we also have a five-day precision rifle sniper class. Uh, in the fall as well, and that will be with uh, with our good friend and uh, Battle Road staff member John Hawes, who should be coming off his deployment uh, uh, so a few weeks before he gets here to teach the class. Uh, this is we've run this class uh, three times already, and the folks really. Uh, I've really enjoyed the class and learned a lot. I've taken it each time myself. It is a uh, it's a fantastic class, which teaches you how to make the shot at distance, and it's a solid five day block of instruction. And John teaches uh, every minute of each of the days. There's no uh, there's no fluff entered into it. Uh, there's no uh, thirty minute breaks every. Uh, Every hour, the class is a solid five-day block of instruction. You'll be very glad that you took it. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the And I'm working on the 2016 uh, schedule as well. And that is certainly going to be a solid pack year because we're working with several other schools, including uh, John Hurt from Tier Group. We'll be teaching uh, several courses in combat tracking, 
in uh, early 2016 and in the fall of 2016, uh, which will be teaching you. These will be five-day courses teaching you how to track as part of a team in a possibly hostile environment, as well as uh, a couple of three-day patrolling and medicine classes. These classes will be full immersion type classes where you'll uh, you'll get here, you'll gear up, you'll take off on patrol, and all of the uh, instruction will be done while we're on patrol. This is uh, something that uh, that I think works pretty well, and uh, I think that you're going to enjoy it. So be sure and keep checking back at the BattleRoadUSA.com website. Uh, we're also uh, we're also working out the uh, the all the the kinks uh, to set up the gear shop for Battle Road. That's going to be a little it will be a little while in the future, but we're setting up the gear shop for Battle Road so that we can begin providing gear uh, to folks uh, that come to the website at the best possible prices we can get. From from any of the vendors that we work with. So, like I said, keep checking back to the Battle Road uh, USA.com website, <clears throat> and uh, hopefully we can have that uh, the shop up and running in the uh, next 60 days or so. All right, let's jump into <clears throat> the main topic for tonight, which is making the shot. Uh, as shooters, as riflemen, that's something that we want to we want to be able to be we want to be able to do, and we want people to be able to depend on us to do. Uh, we want to be able to deliver the shot when needed. The only way you're going to be able to make the shot is by understanding the fundamentals and then working the fundamentals on a regular basis. <clears throat> the there are plenty of uh plenty of fancy classes you can take. You can take all of the different uh combat and uh, fighting carbine classes and stuff like that. And those are all great. And I do recommend that as your participation in shooting continues that you that you constantly stretch your skills and add new skills to uh, uh, to your abilities by attending classes like that. But I'll tell you this: the fundamentals, the fundamentals of rifle, the fundamentals of pistol, any of the fundamental classes are the classes. Uh, the fundamental skills and techniques are the these are the things that are going to save you. These are the things that are going to save your life is the fundamentals. Having a good working knowledge of the fundamentals and to and being able to run these fundamentals without having to think about it. So where do we begin? In order to make the shot, you're going to need something to shoot with. You're going to need uh, a rifle. Now, what kind of rifle you use, that's up to you. I'm not even going to... Uh, I'm not even going to get in in any form or fashion of what rifle is better than the others because the best rifle to have is the one you have in your hands when you need it. And that's the absolute best rifle that you can have. And having a working knowledge 
of the rifle you have in your hands when you need it is uh, the second part of the equation. Uh, I shoot uh, I shoot several different rifles uh, just because I enjoy shooting different rifles in different calibers, and each one has uh, their good points and they all have their limitations. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, the M1 Garand, but I also shoot the M14. I shoot the AR-10. I shoot the AR-15. Uh, I shoot the AK-47. <laughs> I shoot uh, as many different rifles as I can get my hands on. But in order to uh, in order to begin the process of making the shot, you're going to have to have a rifle, and that rifle needs to be in a safe and uh, uh, and competent working fashion. So you need to make sure that your rifle is in good working order. Uh, that means making sure that it's clean and then making sure that uh, it is mechanically sound, making sure that uh, the levers, uh, everything on it is working, there's nothing broken, that uh, it is cleaned off, uh, the uh, there's not a buildups of carbon. There's not uh, sand in the action, uh, and then you're going to make sure <clears throat> that uh, when you begin your your process of learning to make the shot, that the rifle's sights uh, are in order, and uh, you want to make sure that all of the the screws, all of the bolts, everything is nice and snug as it is supposed to be by the manufacturer's uh, suggested uh, by the by the manufacturer's suggested uh, working order. <clears throat> what I mean by that is your uh, action screws. Uh, if you've got a uh, uh, a rifle where you have a bolt that connects the the metal portion of the rifle to a plastic or a composite or wood stock, you want to make sure that that screw is nice and snug, not over-tightened, not torqued down, but it needs to be nice and snug, as it's supposed to be, uh, uh, according to the uh, manufacturer's suggestion. All right? Then you're going to make sure that your sights, the uh, that your if you have uh, the regular uh, uh, analog sights that they are nice and tight, that uh, none of them are wiggling or have any movement. If they're supposed to be uh, held fast by screws or uh, or bolts, that those bolts are snug down. Uh, to the recommended uh, tensions. If you have a scope on your rifle, that the scope mounting uh, screws, uh, bolts, whatever it's keeping in place, that those are snugged down to the recommended tension, uh, that everything is nice and snug as it's supposed to be. Because <clears throat> in order to make a shot, uh, you need to be consistent. And that means that 
your rifle needs to remain, to remain consistent as well. Uh, if you, and I've seen this, over, the reason I'm, we're talking about this is because I've seen this over and over and over. I've even done it myself. That is, uh, you get to, to the... You get to the range, you begin shooting, and uh, you put, uh, we had students that have put in a good uh, several hours of shooting, and all of a sudden around lunchtime, instead of getting better, their groups start getting worse. They start opening up, and uh, and their corrections that they are applying uh, are no longer having the, the desired effect and uh, the reason is because something has come loose. Uh, some of their uh, their uh, their sites have worked their way loose, and uh, and tech sites were traditionally pretty notorious for this. Uh, and there's several other uh, sighting systems that. Uh, that are prone to working their way loose. Certainly your scope mounts uh, can do it very easily. So the first thing you want to do, make sure that your rifle is in good working order. All of the uh, bolts, screws, everything are snugged down to the recommended tensions. And then you can begin your sighting in process. <clears throat> now, uh, we're not going to cover the The I guess we we can we can cover the uh, the safety aspects of it. Certainly, you need to make sure that uh, time you're handling a firearm. Uh, you need to make sure that uh, that you keep your finger off the trigger unless your sights are on the target. Let the rifle where it's supposed to pointed to be pointed at where it's supposed to be. You don't want your finger on the trigger. I say this because this is really the most important of the safety uh, the safety concerns that you will face. Uh, the most important one is going to be keeping your rifle keeping the muzzle in a safe direction. And this is the most important aspect of it because uh, if something happens, if you somehow manage to to blow the rest of the safety concerns and a round gets fired, if your rifle is in a safe direction, then... And uh, a safe direction is any direction where uh, where property will not be destroyed or a person injured by a discharge of the firearm. If your muzzle is in a safe direction, then uh, then that's going to save you. All right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> you'll also need to make sure that you understand uh, what you're shooting at where you're shooting, what you're shooting at, what's behind what you're shooting at. And this is important because uh, I've, I've actually been to locations where uh, 
where we were told by the by the landowner everything was fine, everything was good, and uh, and upon investigation, you find that on the other side of the berm is uh, like a trailer park or something like that, and uh, uh, so you need to know what is behind your target. Uh, it, you can't uh, you can't simply rely on whatever your target is to catch every single round and stop it. You got to make sure that uh, you know what is beyond behind and beyond your target. <clears throat> All right, there's a lot of different uh, there are a lot of different safety rules from a lot of different folks. Uh, there's the the three main ones. Uh, the most important one, of course is keeping your muzzle in a safe direction. That uh, safe direction is going to be determined by wherever you are and your common sense, all right? Uh, if a safe direction is downrange, it's not very safe if there are people downrange. If a safe direction is up and uh, you're in, an, uh, in a location that is in a flight path of uh, <laughs> for the local airport, then up isn't always that great. Uh, it's going to it's going to de- your common sense and your location is going to determine a lot of uh, a lot of what is safe and what's not safe. All right, so if you've got a good working rifle in good working condition and you're obeying the safety rules, that's where you get started. <clears throat> and then uh, and then the we talk about the fundamentals, and we're going to talk about positions and about swings. Uh, we're going to talk about all of the things that you need to make the shot, all of the fundamentals. And when we talk about this, certainly we're going to be doing it in in a best-case scenario uh, at the range on a nice day type situation. And that's where you want to learn this, because you want to learn uh, what is the right way. And once you've learned what the right way is, uh, then you begin. You can begin to deviate from it in situations where it's required. No different than driving. First, you have to learn how to drive correctly, uh, and then you can learn to break the rules when they're needed. But you have to learn how to drive correctly, and you have to learn how to shoot correctly first. You need to learn what uh, prone, seated, and standing position is first, so that you can uh, as as closely approximate them as possible in adverse situations, in awkward situations, all right? All right, so a lot of people think that the sling uh, is used simply to carry the rifle around. You know, you've got to have something to to hold the rifle in place while you're you're eating your sandwich, right? Something to hold the rifle in place uh, while you're walking from point A to point B, something to hold the rifle in place while you're uh, chatting on your phone. Uh, and certainly it can do that. Certainly the sling can hold your rifle, but that's not the purpose of the sling. The purpose of a sling for the rifleman is to steady, to uh, help you steady the rifle and aid you in making the shot. Uh, and there are several Sling positions that you can use, standard sling positions, and then there, there are there's a, a myriad of uh, other 
uh, in-betweens that you can use. If you can get a sling, if you can make a sling, heck, even uh, even a piece of baling twine, uh, anything that you can use to, to help you stiff the rifle uh, and assist you in making the shot uh, is going to benefit you, all right? Uh, there are there are usually a, a couple of main sling uh, techniques uh, that we teach, uh, and uh, of course, certainly if you've been to an apple seed or if you're an apple seed instructor uh, currently, then you know that uh, there are several different uh, uh, sling techniques that can be used, and. Uh, <clears throat> we're really not going to go into the sling techniques tonight because really you need a visual of the sling to, uh, in order to understand how it works for you. And I can't do visual on the radio. Uh, what I will do is I'll post sling position pictures, uh, on the blog, uh, for the next week that will uh, coincide with the instruction from the show. And, uh, you can take a look at those. Uh, but there are several different techniques you can use to give you, uh, to aid you in steadying the rifle in order to make the shot. <clears throat> I can certainly tell you that uh, when I first started shooting, I thought it was, I thought it was overhyped. I, I thought that, yeah, 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 okay, the sling, yes, I'm sure it's good, I'm sure it's great, but uh, I've been shooting without a sling my whole life, so I, I know what I'm doing. Uh, you may think I don't, but I know what I'm doing. And then once I started shooting with this sling, I realized I didn't know what I was doing. That uh, the using the sling to uh, as an aid for the steady hold was uh, was of great benefit. Okay. <clears throat> So uh, I'm going to suggest to you that uh, on your rifles that you get a good working sling. And now uh, there is a, there's a lot of different folks using a lot of different slings on their rifles. And for quite a while, the uh, like the single points and stuff like that were all the rage. Uh, and I've got some single points, and sometimes I use them. But, uh, but I've also trained myself how you – how do you manipulate the single points into uh, uh, to a, a an actual traditional steady hold for the rifle? Uh, so you'll have to you'll have to start practicing with your slings in order to figure out how to get the most out of each sling because they're all different types of slings. You got the uh, uh, what was the the old 1907 uh, sling, which is you know the the double leather one? We've got uh, the military nylon and cotton ones. You've got the uh, the different slings that are available commercially, and almost all of these can be manipulated in some form or fashion uh, in order to give you to aid you in your steady holds. But you're gonna have to figure it out 
yourself. You're going to figure out, have to figure out how best to use whatever type of sling you're using or go and get the sling that's going to work right for you. in order to uh, aid your steady hold. <clears throat> All right, so when you hear me talking about uh, the, the swing in the next couple of minutes, uh, that's, that's going to be what I'm talking about, is using your swing to assist you in the steady hold. All right. Uh, one of the first things that we'll talk about after the swing uh, are the positions. Uh, there there is the uh, there are three main positions that we use as riflemen. There is the prone, there is some variation of the seated or kneeling, and then there is the standing. Now most people are, are pretty familiar with standing because that's usually how they've been shooting most of their lives is in the standing position. You know, they've been uh not quite as often are you shooting from the, the prone or the seated? Uh, you're more than likely you've been shooting at the standing. Uh, but in order to get the most out of the uh, of the of these positions, you're going to need to do a little bit of practice in it. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> the first thing you're going to do. Uh, let's talk about the the prone first. And the prone is where you're actually laying down. You're laying down on your stomach uh, in order to to make the shot. And this is going to go from the the most stable to the least stable. And the prone is is normally the most stable because you've got the most contact with the ground. The more contact you get with the ground, the less movement you have. The more that you can, the ground is going to move. The more that you can put your body in contact with the ground, then the less movement that you're going to have. All right. Uh, and the first thing that we usually talk about when we're getting into the prone is is getting into the prone with the ability to address your target, right? So you're going to, if you're looking at your target, then uh, if you, now let's talk real quick about uh, strong side. Uh, if you're right-handed, that's your strong side. If you're left-handed, that's your strong side. Okay, so. If you're a right-handed shooter, you're facing the target, you're going to get down into the prone, then the way you're usually going to address this is you're going to cant your body approximately 25 to 35 degrees to your strong side. And what you're doing is you're setting up your position on the ground uh, to, uh, to aid you with your body geometry. Okay, your body geometry is is your relationship to your rifle and your relationship, you and your rifle's relationship to the target. Uh, in order for you to address the target correctly for your body geometry, most people are going to need to, to get into the prone, uh, canted, not canted, but uh, angled approximately 25 to 35 degrees to the strong side, to their strong side. If you're right-handed, it's going to be to the right, so that you're not directly facing the target. Now, you may be able to do this if you're 6'4", with long arms. You may be able to, to point straight at the target. Or if you're uh, 
you're shooting in uh, one of the military uh, style techniques that we uh, that we'll teach, uh, you, you may line straight up on the target too. But normally, you're going to angle yourself approximately 25 to 35 degrees to the strong side when you get into the prone. That means you're not going to be facing directly to the target with your body. You are you to draw a line uh, straight to the target and a line. On your body axis, when you get into the prone, it'd be 25 to 30 degree angle. All right. <clears throat> now, once you're in this position, uh, your forward hand, and if you're right-handed, that's going to be your left hand. Your forward hand will have the elbow on the ground, and it will be as uh, as far under the rifle as it can get. The reason you want to do this is because you want the weight of the rifle to be uh, transferring directly straight down to your hand, and for the hand to be able to, the hand and arm to accept the weight uh, on the bone. And the, the way to do that is make sure that the bone is straight up and down under it. If it's not, if it's in an angle, then you're going to have to utilize muscles in order to keep the the rifle at the height that it needs to be, and muscles become fatigued. Uh, they can move. Uh, they be, it's, you're, you're going to add in movement. So you're going to keep the forward hand as far underneath the rifle and as straight up and down as possible. <clears throat> the forward elbow uh, be resting like on the back of the elbow, the flat part, not on the sharp point of the knob, it should be slid forward enough so that you're resting on the flat of the elbow. If you put your hand on your elbow, you can feel the sharp point of it. You move back on your elbow from the point back toward your body. That next little section there, that's the flat of the elbow. That's what should be touching the ground. <clears throat> and uh, uh, if you're, and sometimes it's not always. Uh, possible to get directly under the rifle, especially if you're using a, a rifle that has uh, like a magazine because the magazine will be coming straight down uh, out of the rifle, but you can get it as close to it as possible. Uh, if you're using a uh, rifle with a magazine, then you should have your arm scooched up under it uh, just tight enough that the forearm should touch the side of the magazine just enough to be able to index there. When I say index, what I mean is uh, so that you'll know you'll know when you get into position where the rifle or where the body needs to be because it's going to touch in the same place every time. It's going to index there. <clears throat> All right. Uh, and that's without putting any pressure on the magazine, causing the rifle to, to cant in one direction or the other. Now, the sling... If you're using a sling like a military or a GI sling in the traditional way, the sling should be passing uh, under the back of the hand. It should be snug, not tight. It should be snug and uh, either attached to pass right above the bicep. Uh, and like I said, we're not going to we're not going to to talk a whole lot about the sling, but because I can't show you the stuff, but I will tell you some things. If you, anytime you're using a sling, 
you want the sling to be as high as possible where it touches your upper arm. And that's whether if you're using a loop sling and you've got it uh, snugged down and wrapped around your arm, which is what a loop sling does, or if it's simply going to be uh, passing over that part of your arm, your upper arm, you want it to be as high up as possible. You don't want it uh, resting or looped onto the large muscle there on your bicep because God, that's a muscle. The muscle is it's sucking up blood and spitting it back out as fast as possible. I mean, there's going to be a lot of blood movement inside the muscle. Uh, you, if you make a, if you make a, you know, like a Superman or a Popeye muscle, and <clears throat> you put your hand and you grasp your other hand and you grasp that uh, that muscle you just made, you can feel the the heartbeat in it. And if your sling is snugged up on top of that muscle, either looped around it or passing over it, then it will uh, it will transfer that heartbeat, the movement of the blood through your body uh, from the heartbeat, will transfer it to the sling, which will transfer it to the rifle. Okay? In a worst-case scenario, you'll actually see the, the front sight bump going up and down, up and down with every beat of your heart. Our objective is to remove uh, every bit of movement possible. So make sure that your sling is not uh, passing over or snugged onto the bicep, all right? Now, <clears throat> your, your weak side leg, now that's the, if you're right-handed, your right side is your strong side. If you're right-handed, your left side is your weak side. Your weak side leg uh, should be straight on a straight line with your spine. So if you're drawing a line from down the length of your spine and continuing on, your weak side leg should be directly uh, parallel to that line. You should have it outstretched and parallel to that line. And uh, the uh, the the toes on the foot, you can either they can either be turned out or in, whichever direction is is more comfortable for you. But the foot should be relaxed. Uh, it should not be, let's say, toes dug in, uh, because that is going to transfer movement. It's going to affect you too whenever you are doing your natural point of aim shift that we'll talk about in just a minute. <clears throat> the uh, the foot should be, you can have it turned in or out, but it should be relaxed. Now, the trigger side leg, if your right hand, the right is your strong side, your right leg is your trigger side leg. Trigger side leg uh, should be pulled up uh Nice and tight. Uh, it should be pulled up uh, with the knee, trying to bring the knee high up as in as close as far forward as possible. Uh, with the shin bone parallel to that line that you drew through your spine, uh, and this is going to do two things for you. Uh, the first thing it's going to do is going to roll you up. Uh, very slightly. It's going to roll you up off of your belly, which is going to make it easier for you to breathe. And it's going to help absorb recoil. If you've got it pulled up nice and tight, it's almost like a spring. 
So when you go into recoil with the shot, it pushes you back, but you've got that leg that's coiled up there that's going to actually act almost like a spring. It's going to help absorb the recoil and then push you back uh, into your previous position. The trigger side elbow. This is your trigger finger elbow. should be planted. It shouldn't be... Uh, you shouldn't be resting equal amounts of weight on your right and left elbow. You shouldn't be uh, uh, bipoding. Uh, you should have the majority of the, your weight on your uh, forward elbow. But your trigger side elbow should be planted. It should be a nice, firm planting of the elbow so it's not moving around. Uh uh, you've got enough weight on the trigger side elbow <clears throat> so that uh, so that it stays in place despite uh, the movement that's going to occur during recoil of the rifle. <clears throat> All right, the uh, the trigger hand it should be gripping the stock with a nice firm and shaped grip uh, using the the three lower lower fingers from your little finger to the middle finger. Those should be the three fingers that are working in conjunction with the uh, with the rest of the muscles of the hand, and in some cases with the the thumb, but mainly with the uh, in opposition with the hand. Should be grasping uh, the stock and pulling the butt of the rifle directly rearward into the uh, into the shoulder pocket, and this is a nice firm. You're not you're not tweaking it. You're not uh, torquing it. You just got a nice firm handshake grip, and you know what a good handshake feels like. I don't have to tell you that. You, if you're old enough to understand the, what I'm saying, then you're old enough to have had your hand shook by somebody, and you know that there's a uh, a right way to do it. Uh, and certainly, you know the wrong way. You've, everybody's reached their hand out to give somebody else a handshake, and they've gotten that weak grip, and they've gotten, ugh, ugh. You want a nice, firm handshake grip on the stock, pulling the stock in snugly into the shoulder pocket. <clears throat> Your trigger finger. Your trigger finger should be uh, should be completely on its own and not touching anything except the contact that it's going to make with the trigger, okay? Uh, the, the trigger finger, from where it connects to the body of a hand, should not be touching anything else on the rifle. Because if it does, uh, it's going to be able to impart movement to the rifle during the trigger squeeze. And you may not think this is true, but I can guarantee you it's true. After after working with thousands and thousands of folks, I can guarantee you it's true. All right. The, uh, and the finger itself should be low down on the trigger, uh, as far as the far down on the trigger as, as you can get on it with the trigger touching the middle of the finger's first pad, okay? 
And we'll talk about uh, we'll talk well let's we'll talk about it right now because the your trigger is uh, is a lever and fulcrum, and in order to get the most power that you can get from a lever, uh, you need a long lever. You need to be working that lever from the very end of it. The same thing with your trigger. If you grasp that, if you have your finger on the trigger high up, where the trigger goes into the the action of the rifle, it's going to take a lot more pressure to manipulate the trigger. That's just the way that it is. So you, you, you put the pad of your finger as low down on the trigger as you can get. And you're going to have the contact of the trigger with your finger is going to be in the middle of the first pad. The reason you're doing that is because if it if it slides too out too far out to the end of your finger, then you're going to be pushing the rifle away as you're squeezing. If it gets too far in towards the hand, like into that that first joint on the trigger finger, then you're going to be pulling the rifle toward your hand as you're squeezing the trigger. You don't want to do either one. You want to apply uh, a, a nice rearward pressure on the trigger. And the way to do that is to to get that trigger to contact the finger on the center of the first pad. That's, the, that's where you want to start out with. And as I said, you can, you can teach yourself how to break the rules and deviate from that uh, once you learn how to do it right. And that's where you want to start at. Your neck, this is, uh, this is something that a lot of people find hard to do. You're going to take a little practice. But your neck needs to be fully extended. All the vertebrae in your neck need to be lengthened for you've made your neck as long as possible. And then it's going to, it's going to like, once you've made your neck long, you're going to move it forward and down to where it touches, your face touches the rifle with your neck fully extended. <clears throat> now, this does a couple of things also. Number one, it creates a consistent point for you to place your head. Remember what I said earlier, in order for you to be a, a good shot, you have to be a consistent shot. You have to make the shot the same way every time. You can't change anything and expect the rounds to impact in the same place. If you go, well, I'm going to change where I'm putting my head this time. I'm going to change where I'm putting my hand. I'm going to change where I'm putting this or this or this. Uh, because every single thing you do affects the impact of the round down range. So you want to try and limit the things that make it inconsistent and try and maintain as much of the things which make it consistent as possible. So you make your neck as long as possible, and then you you tilt that, neck and face down to where it touches the rifle. And the second thing this will do, it will also help you with uh, with scope or, or sight eye because what usually happens to folks that end up getting scope eye, and that's where the scope comes back and cracks in the eye or the head or the sights come back and rake you, is that you've got your... <clears throat> You've got your neck scrunched down with the rifle pulled tight up against your scrunched in neck. When your rifle goes in recoil, your head doesn't have anywhere to go. 
it's not going to go back with the rifle because it's got nowhere to go back to. So when the rifle goes back, it impacts into your face. And uh, I think it's a pretty nasty scope eyes out of this. But when your neck is, when you've elongated the vertebrae, then when your rifle goes into recoil, your your head moves back with it. And the scope can't hit you in the eye because the head travels back the same distance as the scope would travel. <clears throat> now, the place where you put your cheat, your elongated uh, vertebrae down to the rifle, let's call it cheek weld. And that is where your face touches the rifle, and you try, want to try and make it touch the rifle in the same way every time. Uh, and like I said, obviously, there's going to be, uh, especially if you're field shooting or, or God forbid, you get into some kind of uh, self-defense or combat situation, uh, one of the things they say about that is if your technique is good, then you're shooting too slow. Uh, however, you've got to have a place to start from. That means good technique that you start from. And that means learning to do it consistently. That means putting your cheek in the same place every time. <clears throat> when my when I lift, uh, especially my grand, because that's that's the rifle that where my hand touches my face usually. When I put my face down to my garand and uh, I touch my uh, my fingertip touches the corner of my mouth, my uh, the top of my thumb touches the bottom of my cheekbone. I know how it fits. I don't have to think about it. I know when I get into that position. It's like a it's like a piece of the puzzle that locks into place. So I know my head is in my face is in the right place because it feels right because I've done it a lot of times and I know that that's where it's supposed to be. You want to get a good cheek well. That's where the cheek is placed firmly against the buttstock after you've turkey neck, which is what the lengthening vertebrae is called, uh, which puts the eye in the in the right place to be aligned with the sights and then contact your face being stuck on the rifle is maintained throughout your string of fire that means every time you fire you don't your your face doesn't come off the rifle until you're done firing it stays touching your cheek stays touching the stock through your string of fire that means if you're every time you fire your your face stays there until you're done with the firing, or if you have to uh, change out magazines, whatever it is, you don't move your face until you're done shooting. That's why it's called a weld <laughs> and not called a temporary placement of the cheek. It's called a cheek weld, not a cheek for just a second placement. It's going to stay there throughout the string of fire. <clears throat> uh, now, we talked a little bit earlier, or I mentioned earlier, the shooter geometry. And uh, and this is important because uh, every single body, every single human body is different. There is uh, there's no two human bodies that are exactly the same. Uh, every single uh, body is going to be different. 
It's going to be a different size, a different shape. Uh, uh, some people are skinny. Some people are not so skinny. Some people have uh, uh, three-foot-long arms. Some people have two-foot-long arms. It's Everything is is different. And the only thing that's not different in this equation is the rifle. The rifle stays the same size. It, it can't be manipulated or folded. Most of the time it can't. Certainly there's the... Uh, uh, the stocks that can be extended and stuff like that. But for the most part, the rifle has to remain the same size. The only thing that can be altered is the geometry of your body, the way that you're going to address the rifle. All right? Like I said earlier, a taller shooter, longer arms, can can come much more closer to facing, a direct facer on the target than... Uh, than a shooter with shorter arms. A shooter that's uh, uh, that is, like I said, uh, six foot five, seven foot tall, can just about get straight onto the target because their body, their arms are going to be long enough uh, for them to be able to address the rifle uh, and make the shot. The folks that are uh, five foot tall are going to have a lot more trouble doing that with the same rifle. They're actually going to have to camp their body more in order to shorten the rifle. The more angle that you put on your on your body and as far as the way that you address the target, the more that you face away from the target with the rifle, the shorter you make the rifle. So each, each shooter is going to have a different type of body geometry, and you're just going to have to work through that to determine what yours is, uh, how you're going to have to address the target and by that I mean how you're going to have to how your body is going to have to what direction it's going to have to face in uh, when you're when you're standing there getting ready to engage your target how straight on or how much of an angle you're going to have to put into it in order to get the rifle to address the target as you want it to The next thing we'll talk about is a thing called natural point of aim. Now, listen, all these, all the stuff that I'm telling you, all of the, all of these different things that uh, that we're talking about, none of this is brand new or just now made up or anything like that. Nobody, uh, there's no organization, no, nobody that has uh, developed this, any of these uh, techniques or anything. These are these are techniques that have been worked out over the last 400 years of firearms usage, okay? Uh, you can see uh, plenty of this of these techniques being used uh, as far back as, uh, uh, as the Civil War and beyond. Uh, you can see it, uh, shooters using these techniques, although they may have different names, uh, in the American Revolutionary War, none of this stuff is new or untried or untested. Uh, this is stuff that's been used uh, for a, well over a hundred years. And is well proven to to work. And certainly you don't you don't uh, you don't have to uh, 
do some of these things, uh, but but you should learn them and teach yourself them. Uh, once again, you should learn them the right way to do it before you begin to deviate from it. And people were using their natural point of aim long before anybody ever coined that term. And all natural point of aim is is the uh, the position, the stance, the the, the posture uh, that you use, uh, where the relaxed, uh, where that when you are relaxed, allows the rifle to point at the target with the least amount of muscle input. Remember, we talked earlier about muscles being bad because muscles become fatigued. Muscles introduce movement to the rifle, and movement affects the impact of the round-down range. So we want to try to eliminate movement, and we want to try to eliminate the influence uh, of muscles uh, on the rifle. Now, what this is, uh, I think one of the best ways to explain it would be that If you got into uh, if you got into the prone position and you had a blindfold on, and they just said, "Here, take your rifle, get down into the prone position." You get down into that position, and you get into it with your uh, forward elbow as far into the, uh, the rifle as you can, with that uh, forward hand open, so that the rifle is just sitting in that forward open hand, that you don't have any kind of a grip on it. Uh, you have your position uh, nice. And strong, you've got a good, strong, supported position, but you don't have any muscle influence on the rifle. Uh, you breathe in, you breathe out, you relax, and wherever the rifle is pointing, right at that uh, at that point, that's going to be the natural point of aim. It's the place where the rifle wants to point when you're in the correct position. Not where when you've got into the correct position and then you pull the rifle over with your muscles to where it's, where it's uh, now aligned on the target. It's where the rifle would sit naturally without any muscle influence on it, okay? <clears throat> and that's certainly one of the best ways to determine whether you have good uh, natural point of aim or not and that is to to get into your shooting position and uh, the most uh, the easiest way to tell or the easiest way to see the the effect of the natural point of aim is going to be in the prone. You get into the prone position, you get uh, you you get a good supported prone position. You put your rifle sights on the target. You go through the steps uh, in order to the steps to make the shot, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But you stop uh, right before you squeeze the trigger. And instead of squeezing the trigger, you close your eyes, you breathe in, take a nice deep breath in, breathe out uh, at that point where you get to your, uh, uh, you know, the equalized space in your breathing uh, you open your eyes and you take a look right at that second where the rifle is pointing. That's your natural point of aim, and you need to you need to take that first the first place you see whenever you open your eyes. Not after not after a half second because you're 
your body's going to try and move the rifle back to the target in order to help you. But that first place you see when you open your eyes, that's the natural point of aim. So, if when you open your eyes and you see that that the sights are not on the target, what do you do? We're well, going to have to shift your body. And if you're in the prone position, you've got to, whatever position you're in, you're going to have to pick something that, uh, that's going to remain the same that you're going to index off of. And if you're in the prone position, that index point is going to be your forward elbow, right? That forward elbow is going to stay in place, and your body's going to shift around that elbow. <clears throat> so if you open your eyes and you see that your your front sight is uh, is to the right of your target. It's not on the target. It's to the right of your target. They're going to leave that forward elbow in place, and you're going to move the rest of your body. It's like a, you're going to pivot on that elbow. You're going to move that the rest of your body to the right, and that's going to cause your front sight to shift to the left. <clears throat> Once you've shifted, uh, the correct amount, and you're remember you're only going to make a one direction shift. That means when you are shifting, you're only going to shift to the right or left. You're not going to shift forward or back just yet. You're just going to shift to the right or left uh, initially. You shift where you bring your sights onto the target, and you repeat that that drill again, where you close your eyes, breathe in, breathe out, open your eyes, and when you open your eyes. If your sights are on the target, then that's your natural point of aim. Uh, that allows you, having a natural point of aim uh, keeps you from having to muscle onto the target. Uh, on your follow-up shot, it allows you not to have to muscle again because you know that uh, when you take the shot, you breathe in, you breathe out, and you get to that same position again in your breath, your respiratory cycle, you know that your, tar- your sights are going to be on the target because... That's where they're going to be because that's where the rifle wants to be. That's your natural point of aim. <clears throat> All right. Uh, once you've, uh, once we've worked this out, then uh, let's talk about the actual steps because there is a there is a correct series of steps that you need to follow uh, in order to execute the shot correctly. And uh, uh, there, there are a number of, uh, of different things that you'll need to be doing, and it really needs to be done all at once, but uh, we can boil it down to, into six basic things that we're going to be doing. Uh, and we're going to talk about these in a linear fashion, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. But the reality is that they're not done in a linear fashion. Uh, they're all done pretty much simultaneously so that you can arrive at the singularity, which is the shot, all right? You're not going to do one, two, three, four, five, six. You're doing them kind of all at once, and they're all converging on the shot. The first thing you're going to do is make sure that that whatever you're using for your sighting system, 
that your sights are correctly aligned, okay? Uh, there are a lot of different type sights you can use. Uh, there's certainly the, there's the, uh, the notch and post sights. Uh, there are the, uh, the military uh, peep type sights with the circle and post. There is uh, scopes. There are all different types of sites you can use, but the first thing you have to do is make sure that your sites are in the proper alignment. That just means making sure that the front sight and the rear sights uh, are where they're supposed to be. And uh, if you're using a like a notch type site, that means that you want the the front sight to be centered in between. Uh, the two posts on the back of the rear sight and at the same level. If you could uh, draw a line across the top, then they're all going to be at the same level. The only exception to this would be uh, like on factory sights on a Ruger rifle, uh, on a Ruger 1022 rifle. Uh, that has uh, like a, a little half sphere, a little cup on the rear sights it sits in between the notches on the rear sight, and you want the front sight, which is a ball on the factory sight, you want it to be resting inside the cup on the rear sights, not at the equal height of the two posts in the notch, but inside the cup of the sights. <clears throat> if you're using military-type sights, then you'll have the rear sight will be a circle, and you want the post to come up midway so that it is at uh, the uh, way mark up and then centered within the circle. So if you drew a uh, an X in the circle, it would be directly aligned with the center line, would only come up to the uh, the halfway mark inside the circle. If you're using scope, it's already done for you. All right, it's already done the way it's supposed to be done. Uh, you just need to make sure that if you're using a scope, that the the crosshairs or the post, whatever's inside the scope, that it's correctly aligned and that you're not seeing any dark edges around the uh, around the circle. Anything that uh, uh, that is showing you that it has. Uh, uh, that it's not that your eye release is not correct, okay? <clears throat> so you're just simply making sure that the front and rear sights are in the correct alignment, the way that they were made to be lined up in order for uh, you to get the rifle to correctly index on the target. The next thing that you want to concentrate on is your sight picture. And what this is, is making sure that your that your sights are placed, uh, that your correctly aligned sights are placed on the target in the correct fashion. And uh, this is, a lot of this is going to depend on whatever, whatever sighting position that you use. Uh, some people use center of mass, uh, center of target. Some people use a six o'clock. Uh, it really kind of depends on what 
what type of uh, a sighting uh, picture that you are using onto where you're going to put it. Uh, with my iron sights, I almost always use a 6 o'clock hole because if you're shooting up close, it doesn't matter a lot. But when you start, once your target gets farther and farther away, that means your front sights become really big. Uh, and if I'm shooting with my iron sight at a target that's 400 meters away, then my front sight, uh, say if I'm shooting at a uh, at a human-sized silhouette at 400 meters, my front sight uh, has become many, several times the width of my target. And if I try and use that front sight uh, and I try and put it in the middle of the target, then I'm covering up a huge chunk of that target. And I don't want to do that. I want to be able to see where my target is. So I use the six o'clock hole. What that means is I'm putting the, the front sight right below where I want to hit. Uh, so if I'm using a, uh, uh, say I'm shooting at a, uh, at a circular target, I'm shooting at a, a four-inch square, I mean, it's four-inch circle <clears throat> with my rifle, with my iron sight. And what I'm doing is I'm bringing the front sight post up to where it touches the bottom of the circle. And when, we've, when, we've, when I've sighted in my rifle, I've sighted in at the, with the six o'clock hole, and that means that I've adjusted the impact of the round to be approximately two minutes above the front sight. So if I'm shooting at a four-inch circle at 100 yards, my bullet is going to strike two inches above my front sight post. Uh, so, and I'm making, I make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm wherever you are putting your sight picture, it needs to be consistent. We talked about consistency earlier, making sure you're doing the same thing, shooting the same way. Well, to this applies just as true to your sight picture. You need to make sure you're you're putting your sights in the same place every time or you're or you're making allowances for any movements, any any deviations you're making from it. So the sight picture is where you are putting your correctly aligned sights. <clears throat> if you're using a scope, then you're usually putting these the crosshairs directly on what you want to hit. That brings us to the next thing which is our respiratory pause. Uh, and we discussed earlier the fact that that we're trying to eliminate all movement out of this equation. Because any movement, anytime you move any part of your body, then you are moving the rifle. And there's 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 just there's no way to get around it. Uh, any movement that you make is transferred to the rifle. Uh, any right any movement the rifle makes affects the impact of the round downrange. And we know that a human hair is a six thousandth of an inch wide, right? I'm asking you right. Well, it is. A human hair is approximately six thousandths of an inch. A six thousandth of an inch movement, six thousandths of an inch deviation at the shooting line will cause a uh, one minute or a quarter of an inch deviation at uh, 25 meters. It will cause a one-inch movement at 100 yards. If you move your your rifle, if you move that front sight, the equivalent of a human hair 
it's going to cause it to move the impact of the round downrange. There is, there's no way around that. So we're trying to eliminate all of the movement out of this equation. Uh, if you breathe, you're moving your whole body. There's no way around that. So what we need to do is we need to make the shot when we're not breathing. And uh, I don't mean post-mortem. I mean uh, at a point in your respiratory cycle where you have stopped the actual act of breathing. <clears throat> now, this can be done in uh, in about as many ways as there as there are people. Okay. Uh, once again, though, whatever, however you decide to do it, it needs to be done the same way uh, every time. Uh, for simplicity, I use the bottom of my cycle. That means I breathe in, I breathe out. When I breathe out. I get to that point where the where I've equalized the pressure uh, in my lungs. Uh, there's still air left in there. I could forcibly express that air, but I'm not. I just breathe in. I breathe out. I get to that point where the air uh, is equalized, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a beat or two beats before I need to take another breath, and that's where I'm going to take the shot. Now, you do this, and I do this too, because it's a very natural uh, part. It's a very natural point in the cycle. Uh, you do it uh, thousands and thousands of times a day without thinking of it, right? Because that's that's how you breathe. That's how your, your body takes in air and, and puts it back out. You breathe in. You breathe out. Then there's a beat. Then you breathe in and you breathe out. Now, if you remove that beat and you just breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, without that beat, then you'll hyperventilate. Oxygen is actually a poisonous gas. Uh, oxygen is actually poisonous enough to kill you. The reason it doesn't is because the majority of stuff that we breathe in is inert gases. We're just breathing in a fraction of oxygen, and we're only taking it in in, uh, in a controlled measure. So I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. There's a beat, maybe two beats, and then I repeat it. I breathe in, I breathe out. So what I'm going to do in order for me to make the shot consistently I breathe in, I breathe out. When I get to the bottom of my cycle, I'm timing it so that I all of the steps that we're talking about, they're all going to arrive at this location, at that point, which is the singularity. They're all going to arrive at, the, at that point, and I'm going to take the shot at that point where I have gotten to the bottom of my cycle. And that's just how I'm going to do it. You can, you can also hold your breath. You can take a breath in and hold it. Or you can take a breath in and then let out a quarter of a breath or a half or three quarters, uh, whatever works for you. But it needs to be consistent. You need to be able to do it the same way every time. A lot of people can. They can take their, let out their quarter of a breath and 
make the shot or they can use uh, bringing in or letting out air uh, in order to to move their natural point of aim. That's fine. That's great. Uh, But you need to figure out where you're going to do it and then and then keep that as where you're doing it. Can't move it around, uh, at least not while you're learning it. Like I said, you can learn the rules first and you can break them. But uh, I use the bottom of my cycle. I breathe in, I breathe out. I get to that uh, the bottom of my cycle, and that's where I take the shot. Okay? And it's easily, easy for me to repeat, easy for me to repeat during a string of fire. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but that is your respiratory pause. Now, there's a couple of other additional things that we're going to be needing to do during this during this cycle. These a couple of steps. Uh, one of them is going to be a physical thing, and one is a mental thing. Uh, the to focus your eye uh, somewhere on something and uh, it can be it can be it, we, we've asked you to look at three things right we've asked you to look at your front sight your rear sight and the target those are the three things that, that that you really need to be aware of while you're making the shot. Uh, but your eye is actually a, a, a physical lens, no different than like a camera lens, right? Or binoculars. Whenever you whenever you want to see something clearly, you need to adjust the focal length so that you bring that particular thing you're looking at into focus. Uh, I can look, I can hold my finger at arm's length in front of me, and I can look at the tip of my finger, and I can see the the finger very clearly. But just past my finger is the rest of the world. And it's hard for me to see anything else in the rest of the world in focus because my focal length is adjusted to in order to bring my finger uh, sharply uh, into focus. So you have really only one thing that you can, one distance that you can be focused on at any one time. So we need to determine what that thing is that we need to be focused on, right? Uh, so is it the target? Because we're looking at the target thing. Yeah, we better look at that target. Uh, or is it the the rear sight? You need to see where that rear sight is, so I'll know where to put the front sight. Uh, or is it the, the front sight? And the answer is it's the front sight. And why? Because it's that front sight post that determines where the round is going to impact. That's just that's it. That's the physics of of your rifle and shooting. The front sight post is going to determine where the round impacts. Uh, you don't need to see the rear sights clearly. They can be out of focus. You can see like an out of focus circle or an out of focus notch with a sharp uh, focused 
post that you can tell is centered uh, directly between them and at the same height. Uh, and what about the target? Uh, if you're looking at uh, the target and it's slightly out of focus, does that really matter? It really doesn't, does it? Because if you put that uh, sharply in focus, clearly defined front sight, into the center of that slightly out of focus uh, target, it's going to hit the center of the slightly out of focus target. That's just the way that it works. So we need to make sure that uh, our physical requirement is met by keeping our eye focused on the front sight. We need to make sure that that front sight is very sharply defined and it's in focus because we want to make sure that we're putting the front sight in the right place. Now, the second part of this is the mental aspect of it. And, and what you have to do is you, you focused your eye now on the front sight. Now, you're going to be asked to focus your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Now, certainly this seems uh, not very elemental, right? Uh, it seems like uh, uh, like this would happen uh, no matter what, but it doesn't. All right, uh, there's a number of things that can go can go goofy on this, and they do. Uh, so the most important part of this equation that you're going to do, well, the whole day of shooting your whole life is this one little aspect right here. And that's making sure, focus your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Because if you don't, you're not going to hit the target. You're going to hit wherever the front sight is at. So in order for you to hit your target, the front sight has to be on it. The crosshair, the front sight, whatever it is, has to be on the target. You have to ensure that you're giving yourself a, a overriding command that the front sight is on the target. I used to have to repeat that. I used to have a, a mantra that I had to do while I was shooting, front sight on the target, front sight on the target. Like I said, it sounds silly, but the fact is, is that over 90% of the shooters won't do this. And if your front sight isn't on the target, I can guarantee you you're not going to hit the target. All right. The next thing is trigger squeeze. And really the word squeeze is exactly how we want you to think about it, squeeze. It's called trigger squeeze because that's what we want you to do. We don't want you to trigger yank, trigger pull, trigger jerk. We want you to trigger squeeze. That means you're going to apply pressure directly rearward in an increasing amount until it causes the rifle to fire. Uh, and this should be done in a controlled fashion, so controlled that were your front sights to leave the target, that you could stop the process right where it was, move back to the target, and then continue the process from the exact same point. If you can't stop it, if the sights come off the target and you go, oh, it's too late, I'm already squeezing, that means you're jerking the trigger. And if you jerk the trigger, it's going to affect the impact of the round down range. So you're going to have to have a trigger squeeze 
where you have a controlled uh, manipulation of the trigger, putting pressure, consistently increasing pressure in a rearward, directly rearward fashion until you have caused the trigger to break and the rifle to fire. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the next part of this is these are all equally important parts, but everybody dismisses everything that happens after the trigger squeeze because they say, well, that's it. Bang. Nice shot. That's it. Once I squeeze the trigger, once it's fired, it's over, baby. That round's going to hit the target. Well, that's not necessarily true because the projectile takes a measurable amount of time to go from ignition to exiting the barrel. If I asked you, whenever you squeeze that trigger and the hammer hits the firing pin on that round, how fast is the projectile traveling right at that moment? The answer is zero. It's not traveling anywhere. It's sitting there. You've already squeezed the trigger. The trigger has caused the hammer to move forward. The hammer has moved forward has struck the firing pin, the firing pin has struck the primer on the cartridge and has ignited the, the, uh, the, the gunpowder, caused it to turn from a solid into a gas and is now projecting, uh, is causing the projectile to leave. But at that moment, that right at that moment, squeezing the hammer goes forward, the, the projectile is moving at zero velocity. There's an actually a measurable amount of time it takes, not a very, very small amount, but a measurable amount of time it takes for the projectile to go from ignition to leaving the barrel. And during that time, it can be acted upon in order to affect the impact of the round down range. You want to eliminate those possibilities. So in your follow-through, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to hold the trigger to the rear. You're going to hold the trigger to the rear so that there is no movement. In order for your finger to come off the trigger, it, it doesn't come off the trigger all by itself automatically. It comes off the trigger because you've got a whole bunch of other muscles that are moving, and they're moving actually like from your elbow down to the finger to get it off the trigger. So that movement is actually started before the finger comes off the trigger. And the finger, if the finger is in the process of shooting. Once it's fired, once you've squeezed the trigger, you're already starting that muscle movement to bring the trigger, the finger off the trigger. That means you're moving the rifle before the round has left, the projectile has left the barrel. That's going to affect the impact of the round down range. Remember we talked about the human hair, one sixth out of an inch is going to move it a quarter of an inch at 25 meters. You don't want to do that. So you're going to hold the trigger to the rear. It's not going to move for that fraction of a second it takes for the round to leave the barrel. The next thing you're going to do is you're going to call the shot. That means you're going to make sure that you are looking and you're seeing when, that, when the hammer, when the trigger breaks and there's that click that you would get during a dry fire, when the hammer breaks, you're going to take a snapshot of where that front sight was when the rifle fired, because there is that, you've got enough time that you can take a picture with your mind of where the front sight is before it gets lost in the recoil. You can do it. Uh, it takes a little bit of training, but you can do it. And you need to do that because 
you need to be able to tell where was that front sight when the rifle fired. Did I impart movement to it to cause it to shift slowly, slightly to the right or above or below? <clears throat> because you want to be able to call your shots. Uh, I should be able to, to have a string of 10 shots, and even without a scope or anything else, I should be able to tell you uh, I should be able to, to tell you which ones were on target and which ones were off before I even get down there and take a look at it. I should be able to say, that. Ah, look, I know shot number two is going to be a little bit high and right because that's where my front sight was when the rifle fired. If you can't do this, it could be because you are closing your eyes during the string of fire. It could be any number of things. Listen, we're, uh, we're at the end of the show, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pick this back up uh, this next Saturday, 7.30 p.m., with this second part of this of making the shot. I want to thank everybody that, uh, that listened tonight, and I hope that the, the email program is working and that you guys are getting your, uh, their notices. Uh, and then uh, until uh, next uh, Saturday, 7.30 p.m., God bless and keep you all. Thanks for listening tonight. Thanks for listening to the archives. And uh, we'll see you this next Saturday. 7.30 p.m. God guide us and keep us. Guide our hands in this for our cause. It is.